Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the easiest, fastest, and most secure way to swap your digital assets. Don't run the risk of leaving your funds on a centralized exchange. Visit Shapeshift.io to get started today. And this episode is also sponsored by my patrons on Patreon. We got about 40, got about 700 bucks a month. And so I like to give different examples each episode for why they support. And here's why Jason says he supports. He says, I like your philosophy of a humanist blockchain future. It is the only perceived non-faith-based approach that has the ability to create something for the common good. Woo! Um, so today's episode is with Kim Mike Cutler and Gary Tan, who are partners at Initialize Capital. And it was a in-person interview. And it was also my first two-person interview, which was fun. So you can kind of hear them talk back and forth with each other. Um, and we talk about a bunch of different things, um, but there are kind of four big buckets. The first is techno-utopianism versus skepticism. And Kim and Gary take different sides on this. And the key concept here is that we have this positive-sum web world um, versus our kind of zero-sum atom physical world. Um, and so you have this awesome thing where people can talk on the internet, information's flowing freely, stuff seems so awesome, um, but those infinite electrons really do meet these finite atoms of normal life. Um, and, and you kind of, SF is a perfect example of that, where you have, you know, venture capital firms and tech offices um, indoors, and then outdoors, a bunch of homeless people staying on the street, whatever. Um, so we talk about that. We also talk about um, venture capital as a kind of system, and what it's optimized for essentially and this is something that i personally have harped on a bunch um where you know venture capital isn't quite as good at meeting um certain needs like providing value to poor people because um they can only pay they can pay less so if you give a poor person value they can only pay one dollar versus a rich person value and they can pay a hundred bucks um and so we talked about that and how and it was honestly a really good conversation and how they're both very aware of how um, venture capital, what it's optimized for and what that system is optimized for versus other kind of civic institutions, also how those civic institutions are invested in venture capital, um, things like that. And for me, I came out of it thinking, though, like, what's the design problem? Like, can we can we design a system like venture capital that has all the goods of it with the growth and the innovation and things like that, um, but it's also optimized for something like happiness um, and kind of long-term anti-fragility, taking things like externalities into account or working from a shared outcome co-evolution perspective. Um, not sure how to do that, but uh, definitely on my mind uh, and definitely something we talked about. Um, the third thing we talk about is San Francisco as a place of uh, both beautiful spontaneity. So, for example, um, I was initially just going to have this interview with Gary, but then Kim was there. And so we were able to have the, the interview with the three of us. So that's like a beautiful example of the power of San Francisco um, and Silicon Valley, but um, also some of the negatives and why people are leaving, uh, primarily around um, housing and transportation um, and how the infrastructure hasn't really kept up with um, the tech and the innovation. Um, and then finally, we talk about Biddle or Biddle as a great meme. Um, and 
how there's one interesting part of it though which is that the money's already been transferred and so the meme as in if you do an ico the money's already gone into your bank account or whatever um and so it's more kind of the meme is powerful especially on the reputation and peer pressure side um and this is very aligned with a lot of things we talk about on the show about the abundance of capital um and then moving towards you know from the abundance of capital towards the scarcity of things like reputation or attention um and then finally uh gary tries to make shipple happen <laughs> like shipping things but shipple um so we'll see if that catches on um so with that i uh, hope you enjoyed this episode with both gary and kim mai um and uh oh yeah it's a good one goodbye Hello, everybody. My name is Reese Lindmark, and welcome to another episode of Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future. And in this episode, we take a systems thinking approach to doing good in the world. And today, we're going to specifically talk about Series A macro systems, where we ask the question, where are we as humanity headed? And today's kind of a fun interview because we're actually live in person. You can hear the, uh, <laughs> the sound of coffee and things. I'm with Gary Tan and Kim Mai Cutler at uh, their office in San Francisco. And Gary and Kim are partners at Initialize Capital, um, which was the first seed investor in Coinbase. So thank you all for being here and excited to uh, dive in. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Woohoo! Um, so let's start at kind of this big macro level before we go into more kind of blockchain-y things. Um, and I saw, Gary, that you shared this great Kyrgyzot and World in Data, um, Max Roser piece about egotistical altruism um and so could you just kind of this is kind of a macro systems perspective on how we can create a win-win world could you say a little bit more about what that video is about and what made you excited by it oh yeah i just i mean it's it's very techno utopianism uh, but that's sort of what i really believe in is that um you know the video starts off with um sort of basically an agrarian society you know for most of human history and prehistory uh, we basically were you know subsistence farmers um, and everything was very zero-sum and so you know throughout history you think about uh, you know wars between city-states or you know rivaling tribes and so you know early in the video it really sort of establishes humanity sort of as very zero-sum really sort of society breaking down into very codified, you know, almost a caste system in mm-hmm. all sorts of ways. And um, the, the key part in sort of uh, the main point of the video is actually, you know, when did that really change? Like when did, you know, sort of wealth um, really spread across all of society? And that was really, you know, technology. So the Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, really greatly increasing production across the board and then you know, today we basically get to uh, sit around and talk about ideas over coffee, <laughs> at least, you know, some of us, and very, you know, a good deal of very luck- lucky middle-class people, certainly in the West, yeah. right? And that hasn't spread all the way across the globe yet, but the hope is that does. Um, and so that's really the most positive sum sort of situation that you could have, actually, that... Um, what technology lets us do is um, actually increase production. And so, you know, that's sort of the key to a better utopian future, um, sort of rising out of basically, you know, extreme uh, need. Yep, yep. And, and like you said, um, there's, it happened for so long that we lived in this scarcity-driven world, in a kind of a win-lose world. 
And as society and as humanity, it's kind of like, whoa, wait a second, something has changed here. Right. And now we can live in this world closer to abundance um, in this win-win world. I love the same guy, Max Roser, has this piece, this six graphs um, piece where he looks at poverty and child education and vaccination, all these things. And like 200 years ago, 90% of people lived in poverty. 90% of people didn't have education. 90% of people weren't vaccinated. And now everything is flipped, you know? And so we're getting closer to living in this good world. Um, but it's also kind of intense because I feel like we have, uh, we haven't quite changed our mindset around it. Do you guys feel like there's still people who are living in a kind of a scarcity, competitive win-lose world rather than a win-win abundant world? I'm, I'm more of a techno skeptic here, I guess. <laughs> I, this no. is like the role that I'm supposed to play. Good, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you look at the Bay Area in California, there's lots of people who are really, um, it's, it's, it's very difficult to stay here. It's very difficult to pay for families here. It's very difficult to pay for shelter here. Um, you know, like we are straining the, um, you know, the, the, you know, we're really testing the limits of like the environment, of climate, of the existing infrastructure that we have. And, you know, my perspective is more that, like, I think the private sector has a really important role to test lots of new ideas, to figure out which ones work, and then to scale them to a certain point. But then at some, you know, a different point, broader public system also has to establish, like, strong balances of power and strong frameworks for that, that um, innovation to happen within. Mm-hmm. And so I think they work together. Yeah, so do you think, so with San Francisco as an example, um, as you're walking... So, so I agree that the, the, the private, private things gone unchecked is yeah. generally a poor thing. Um, do you think that, and whose role is it, I guess? Do you think it's the nation state's role or do you think it is the, individual, um, the individuals, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and what have you to start you know, actively self-taxing themselves? Or where do you, how do you think we should uh, solve it? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think we're all participants in a broader civic society and we're all playing dual roles or multiple roles as we speak. So like you can be a citizen and an active citizen and a participant in a public government and then you could also be a private actor you know you could be an investor you can be an entrepreneur you can be um you know a small business owner and you're playing those roles at the same time and so that like you know from one vantage point if you're a business operator um you know doing right by your customers doing right by your employees and doing right by your investors are all like good things to do you know to act as like a you know a person of integrity within the business community but then as a civic actor you know, you're also a citizen in society, and that means, you know, making sure that public infrastructure systems have adequate resources to do the things that the private sector is unable to do, and then also paying enough attention such that you, the systems are making um, informed, accurate decisions about how to manage both public and private behavior. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that the idea around having multiple personas and saying, okay, right now I'm existing in the market, make money, competitive persona, and I will do good to my investors and to my employees and to whatever, that seems good. And then also at the same time being like, that perspective has lots of externalities that aren't being yeah. taken account because you can't, if you take them into account, then your startup's going to fail because you're trying to do too much good or whatever. And so making sure you also have kind of an externality mindset as well that tries to take those into account mm-hmm. and bring them together. Um, so I like that. But Gary, you were, I mean, at the beginning, we were talking about you as maybe the techno utopian um, vibe. So I want to say something is 
that a is being a techno utopian a contrarian position at right now? It feels like it is. <laughs> <laughs> totally. To say why that is and why you still hold your views. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it just comes from my personal experience. You know, uh, you know, we grew up basically lower middle class in Fremont in the Bay Area, and this sort of both of us are Bay Area natives. Yeah. And um, one of the things that's more shocking to me is that. Uh, the people who are very active in sort of even in our community, they actually you know don't recognize uh, the role that tech has played in basically making this the most upwardly mobile society in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, just by the numbers, there are more people who have been risen up, who have been raised up um, by the existence of tech in Silicon two, Valley like than anywhere else. Two or like a two percent. It's somewhere between two and three, or it's even below two percent unemployment rate. Right, right now in the in the Bay Area. Like, wow. yeah. So for friends who move from elsewhere and work in public policy, they're just like, I mean, they, it's just like kind of unheard. It's great. I mean, yeah. but maybe it's but now what we're what we're hearing, especially around tech, around you know local discourse, particularly around housing and basically housing and transit. Like these are the basic functioning yeah. building blocks of society. Yeah, and that's um, that's where it's it gets you know it's like the zero sum reality of the physical world yeah. and, and resources meets this more positive sum world yes. that you know is available on the web where you have freely access to lots of ideas and content and interaction with people and intellectual stimulation you kind of put those two together and it's just like yeah i mean this this is literally physically where uh unlimited positive sum thinking meets zero sum yes. atoms exactly. it's like infinite Electrons meet very finite atoms exactly. right now. Yes, and those finite atoms, it's, it's kind of because you have the, the tech companies who are doing incredible things in the infinite where transaction costs are zero for distributing information, for you know, all the things. And then outside, there are homeless people hanging. It's like that seems that it feels strange. It's to, ground to, zero for that. Well, battle exactly. right that now. That's also, I would also emphasize that, that the, the people like that, what you see what you see in this neighborhood in particular is like this is not an accident this is like a product of very intentional sets of decisions that were made over the course of several decades yeah. at the federal level at the state level yeah. you know the, like what is out there is a collective choice that people decided are tolerating because we don't allocate enough resources <laughs> um, both on the wage side on low income social programs and low income housing um, and like that, that the the, the sca that scaffolding has been just allowed to deteriorate over the last thirty years. Yep. Through intentional decision making. So so so, so I I agree with all that. Yeah. And my claim, well, so I guess the question here then is, what should a venture capitalist do? And 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 the my slight claim might be that the system itself is is has been very good thus far, but it might be moderately broken for what we want to do in the future because. If you're a venture capitalist, you want to provide value to people. You want to yeah. you know, support people who provide value. And if I'm a, um, an entrepreneur, I'm like, hey, I'm going to provide value to these people. And look, they're rich people. When I provide them one unit worth of value, they can give me $100 in return. It's like, ooh, that's or a pretty investable. Or 1,000x, exactly. That's a pretty investable company. But if I try to provide one unit of value to like, some poor people, it's like, well, they're only going to be able to pay me $1 in return. And yeah, you got to make it up with scale or whatever. How... So I feel like that kind of deep thing where we have where the value function is kind of uh, misallocating where value is actually being created. How do you guys think about that from a venture capital perspective um, and, and trying to do good in the world? 
I think I think that you have to be very clear about what venture capital as a an, as a financial tool can and can't do. Yep. There are things that it can do, and there are things that it can't do. I mean, at the end of the day, like if you're a venture capitalist, you raise funds um, from other investors, many of whom are actually civic actors and public actors, many of whom are you know things like foundations and exactly. universities and things that support civic society and pension funds, yep. um, and then they're only investing you on the basis of what the expected sets of financial returns that you're going to provide them, regardless of what you're investing in. Totally. I mean, like, I mean, you're going to present a thesis, obviously, and then you take that, and then this the, the structure of venture is such that you can only make um, investments that scale really, you know, large, have the capacity to scale yeah. in a really, to, to very, like, very large capacities. Yeah. And so that, like, inherently... Um, forces you in the direction of certain types of businesses and not in the direction of others. Yeah. Um, and what what happens in that other segment is a point where it, like it either should be a totally different source of capital that's structured differently for a different um, rate of expected return, or that needs to be supplied by the public sector or philanthropy. Yeah. I'm just being very like clear and upfront about that. Yep, I, I agree. I think that that is a, or at least that. I agree that's a clear perspective. I think it's similar to your other perspective, which was, hey, let's bucket our minds into two different things yeah. and then act in different ways and different things. Yeah. Gary, do you, do you agree with that, Jen? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, from startup culture, one thing that we know for certain is that um, every person, every entity, every business, every startup can really only do one thing really, really yeah, well. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but I would yeah. also challenge the other notion that you mentioned, which, Ooh, is like, <laughs> which is like a lot of times things that are initially for a small subsegment of people who are more affluent, there are many cases over the entire course of recent history in the technology industry and venture capital where that has then enabled you know an entrepreneur to do a proof of concept and then later made that product or service more progressively more and more accessible to different ranges of incomes of people. Totally. To and potentially billions of people. So, and, I, and I fully agree with that. Yeah. And I think that that is, A, that's part of the natural need to scale. If you're going to hit all 4 billion smartphone users, a lot of those yeah. people have to, and it's part of the natural need to hit um, early adopters at the beginning who are more have more pain, so we'll pay you more for it. And like you say, whether I think pretty much every technological innovation has had that, whether it's Uber with the black cars at the beginning or iPhones, and then now everybody has an iPhone and a smartphone. So yes, I, I strongly agree. <laughs> Um, so I guess the thing that I think would be interesting to go from here is, so venture capital um, has traditionally scaled through uh, software. That has been what we've been doing thus far. Um, and um, my, I think when people talk about like crypto and how crypto, uh, Naval says, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That wasn't actually Naval first, but Mark he gets, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, that I, might be disputed too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is also disputed. I don't think it's clear that, like, has it been clearly attributed to him? There's a lot of things that have been attributed to yeah. Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. He has Robinson. enough as yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> In any case, from that perspective, um, when people talk about it rhyming with the internet but not being equal to, um, I feel like one of the biggest differences is that we're building it on top of the internet already with all those protocols already in place. And so, 
one thing that you'll see within crypto is the memes, the spreading of the memes. Not This is not only crypto, but crypto has a special connection to it because memes can be tied to money then in various ways. Um, so let's talk about some memes. Um, the first one I'd like to talk about is Biddle or Bildle as a meme, um, which has been pushed by the Ethereum community and to say, hey, we want to move away from Holdle as a thing. Let's actually build things for the world. Tell me how you guys are thinking about something like Biddle and how it came to your uh, how it came to your mind and what you think of that as yeah. a meme. I mean, I'll be frank. Even going back to Coinbase, you know, we saw Bitcoin very early. I only put a very small amount just to use the product of product of Coinbase actually, um, and I was not a believer in sort of value broadly. Like I, you know, thought, hey, maybe that's a gold bug thing. I'm not sure if that's really going to take off, and I was frankly just wrong. Um, but the thing that I think we were right about is that um, the store of value is not the only piece of it. Um, the really big vision is actually if we can uh, take this very powerful idea of open source and then merge it with money so that we can actually create um, all kinds of software that frankly could very much challenge the sort of uh, centralized establishment of every type of marketplace, every exchange of value between two people where there's um, some sort of escrow, some sort of, I mean, the, the real difficulty or frontier of this is actually, can you do it at the level of customer support? Like you need a human being uh, intermediary who's sort of um, refereeing the, the, uh, the transaction, for instance. And if it can, well, uh, every sort of transaction between two people or two entities could actually happen uh, better, cheaper, faster, ideally. I mean, just imagine uh, Craigslist has such incredible liquidity. It's impossible to beat them on so many levels, yep. um, purely because it's free. Yep. It's hard to beat that. Um, and so if that could help you create these marketplaces for virtually every human activity, well, that's sort of the uh, big, hairy, audacious goal yep. of uh, what these decentralized systems could be. Yep. And the funny thing is that's... Uh, you know, we don't know. It, it might still actually be brought about by Delaware C Corps that we fund. <laughs> yeah. And how do you see? So I agree with that. And we'll, we'll come back to the the quote unquote um, the tension or the the competition with GAFA and, and traditional centralized aggregators or whatever. Um, how do you think about like like Biddle itself as a meme? Like you know, when you see yeah. stuff on Twitter and crypto Twitter, oh. like what is? Yeah. It's a rallying cry. I mean, <laughs> the memes are really interesting in that uh, the culture of crypto broadly has grown very very quickly, mm -hmm. probably in the course of, I mean, literally months. It's changing every month, and so the memes uh, they're incredibly important just as a matter of being sort of the banner or rallying cry around. This, I mean, it's basically like, it's let's like be frank, crypto is a, yeah. a decentralized. Yeah. <laughs> let's be frank, like, crypto is a cult, right? Yeah. Oh, we, we believe things that nobody else believes yet, yeah. right? Um, and so, Biddle, I think, is actually it's a reaction to sort of the more, um, I mean, scammy parts of crypto. Yeah. It's that uh, you can raise an infinite amount of money and never ship something yeah. or say that an alpha is coming next month and you know what like they're nowhere to be seen in front of a computer they're not building code <laughs> um, and you know frankly it's a shade of what we're used to and uh, you know we've seen that a lot in venture capital you know uh, overcapitalized teams with all-star resumes yeah. they raise all this money and then months later years later actually like no product no shipping 
What's that? Performance anxiety. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yes. Right? Um, and so, you know, our culture coming from Y Combinator, coming from all the startups we funded from literally, you know, one or two people starting out, um, that culture is ship something yes. and then iterate in front of users. Yeah. And so this is like the perfect meme that merges what we know from building lots and lots of companies yeah. with crypto. And yeah. so it's the most important meme that... Uh, frankly, could actually deliver all of the things that people have been promising for years. Nope. Yeah? What kind what do you of, thought, I'm yeah. curious, like, what kinds of structures, I mean, in your conversations with other folks that you've interviewed for this mm-hmm. podcast, I mean, what kinds of organizational structures and contract structures do you think will emerge mm-hmm. that better holds, you know, teams accountable to themselves mm-hmm. and their own goals, mm-hmm. and then... What, what, I'm just curious what you're seeing. Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, I guess I am the, being interviewed now. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that lots of um, people are actively trying to bake these kinds of uh, milestones yeah. into their um, ICOs and, right. um, and say, hey, we will only get both vesting contracts and only when it goes live do we get this amount, only when we have this yeah. amount of users do we get this amount. So people are definitely baking those ideas in. Um, and I think that that is essentially just a formalization or an institutionalization of the Biddle mindset, which is anybody who has integrity is going to say, yes, I'm going to raise some money and actually do something with it. And now we're actually trying to move that into yeah. contracts of smart and non-smart varieties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's hopefully what I'm seeing. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of people that don't do that too. Yeah, and I think that one thing that we will probably see over the next few months or years, especially around this meme, Mm -hmm. um, is actually, frankly, shame. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is uh, something that I noticed actually at uh, our Burning Man camp. (laughs) One of the funniest (laughs) things about it, uh, one of my really close friends runs the camp, and the funniest thing that I noticed watching him run the camp, because you don't really, you don't, you know, you don't manage anyone. All you can really do is try to set up mm-hmm. this structure that uh, makes people do things for the good of, you know, everyone. Yep. Um, and the funniest thing that I saw was he would just be merciless about really, in a funny way, making fun of people for not doing mm-hmm. the thing that they're supposed mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that that might end up being really, really valuable for the community broadly because, frankly, the ink's already dry, the, you know, crypto's been all, already transferred, and then, you know, after the fact, probably the only thing that will really make people change their behavior is actually the social implication of it, yep. right? Like you show up at a party and it's like, hey, I, you know, where, where's that beta? Yep. What's going on? Yep. Um, and so that's the relationship between this very powerful idea and this powerful meme to uh, the society that, itself, I mean, hopefully. I think, it's that, I think that has worked somewhat well in a, like a very physically proximate environment like the Bay Area where you actually physically see people and you expect to work with someone mm-hmm. over potentially many companies right. or years People might decades. just disappear. But yeah. in this world, I mean, like, these teams are all over the world. They're everywhere. So maybe that's isn't it's probably like harder from a social stigma yeah. perspective like only on crypto twitter only yeah. around the uh yeah. the water cooler can you get the yeah. i agree it's harder um yeah but hopefully it was the see. hashtag exactly this episode is brought to you by shapeshift.io the world's leading trustless digital asset exchange quickly swap between dozens of cryptocurrencies including bitcoin ether dash bitcoin cash augur golem and many more and 
this is not your typical crypto exchange. You don't need to create an account or share your personal information, and your funds are never stored on Shapeshift. This means that your hard-earned digital wealth is never up for grabs by hackers or other malicious actors. To get started, visit shapeshift.io, choose the tokens you'd like to swap, input your receiving address, and send your funds. It's that easy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think we'll, we'll see what happens with... Um, when I think about repu, I mean, this is all connected to reputation in various ways. Where it's like, look, capital is not the scarce thing anymore, and so when capital is not scarce, what becomes scarce? And it's things like trust and reputation. It's like, look, you might have a lot of money, but if you haven't shipped, you don't get to come to the party or whatever. Um, so that might be true. Drive your Lambo, but you're not going to be someone I really want to hang out with exactly. anymore. Exactly. Um, so we'll see how that progresses. The other thing that's related to this is from kind of a YC perspective and a lean, agile iteration perspective, you have the build things, but but build has a little bit of um, another key part of the YC perspective is you got to be talking with your customers and understand them and, and empathize with them. Do you feel like there should be a meme, like an empathy meme or something, you know? Yeah. Um, contemporary social network environment is not conducive to empathy memes no. at the moment. Oh, oh my lord. <laughs> that is the quote of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a fair. <laughs> let's, let's stay on that for a second because that was the thing I was going to translate because Gary was talking about it before as well, which is this connection to um, Google, Amazon, and Facebook and, yeah. uh, and Netflix and what have you and kind of uh, behavioral psychology, hooked culture, addiction culture. Um, when your metrics are based around needing to get more time from people on the platform and then extracting their data, there's going to be that has lots of resulting effects. Um, so do you all, this is kind of a question about like a, how bullish are you on crypto question. Do you think crypto um, and attention economy things placed into crypto could maybe help us make systems um, so that empathy memes could exist on the internet? <laughs> I, think, I mean, I just think that technology is a general reflection of humanity. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no, like, I don't know if it, like, it just reflects who we are. And so it reflects our capacity for both good and bad. So I don't, I mean, like, I wouldn't, you know, pretend to say that, like, I think that, like, some crypto, you know, some decentralized version of a social network is going to be better than a centralized social. It'll be different. And I think the benefit of it is actually just having, like, I, I strongly believe in having a balance of power. Yeah. Um, and that like, and that a balance of power is necessary in an open society and in a democracy. And to the extent that something like that would take off and create a balance of power against centralized entities, I think that in principle is a good thing. I don't know if another version of it, um, is necessarily more optimal. It depends <laughs> on the incentives built into the structure. Um, I mean, it's possible, like, I think certainly in certain categories, like Netflix, for example, versus the Facebooks of the world, mm -hmm. like when you're paying for content, yeah. um, you're probably likely to get higher quality. Like that's yes. the fact that someone's willing to pay for it is a, is symbolic of, um, you know, what they times, value mm -hmm. and then also, yeah. you know, sustains higher quality. So that's, that's possible. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, in, in what you're talking about is what we call on this show, like co-evolution towards shared outcomes, mm-hmm. which is you need to have, if you're in any system, in any kind of institution, you want to be able to express voice within that system to have decentralized governance and decentralized ownership. And you want to be able to exit that system if possible. Yeah. Um, and, and, then, if, and Facebook, you're not, all, you can't really exit that system. No exit. It's util- it's you can leave it briefly. I mean, you, can, <laughs> yeah. you, can, you can delete yeah. your account. I mean, it's effectively yeah. a utility. And so what they're doing yeah. right now, I mean, up until I'm very interested to see what the congressional testimony from Mark Zuckerberg will be next week. So he's testifying finally. Mm. Um, but like up until now, I mean, it's just been a lot of, uh, you know, performative theater of accountability and like mm-hmm. conversation about creating an artifice or a theater of some type of governance structure, yeah. which is not real. And can't be real unless there's like a genuine fear of loss of control or power. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Genuine fear or genuine desire for good, I hope might be I don't the other. Think desire <laughs> desire is not not good enough, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's probably true. Well, history rhymes, right? So yeah. But, you know, how is Zuck that different from um, Hearst, for instance? I mean, the, these mediums are incredibly powerful. Yeah. So yeah, or like, I mean, when Joseph Pulitzer, I mean, who came to the U.S. as an immigrant, who created a newspaper empire that, in, you know, enabled the U.S. to end up in the Spanish-American War through yellow journalism, then subsequently, you know, created the Pulitzer Prize yeah. and funded Columbia Journalism School as a professionalized institution mm-hmm. dedicated towards truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one could argue that that was in... Um, you know, feeling of responsibility for what had happened prior in his like private sector career. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, media has always been incredibly powerful. Yeah, yeah. So we're just relearning that. And who is Hearst, by the way? William Randall Hearst. Who's that? Newspaper editor, or sorry, not an editor, publisher, like of the Hearst Castle. I know nothing. H e r s t. H e a r. Okay. 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 Well, uh, and so why? And then famously, what, one of the heirs was uh, kidnapped in the late seventies from mm-hmm. San Francisco oh, by Hearst. the Symbionese Liberation Front. That's right. Yeah. Oh, and Hearst yeah. was a person who was in old media that yeah. then became good. Is that what happened? Uh, <laughs> or... No, I mean you should. Uh, what is the? I'm spacing on the movie. Uh, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. Oh yes. God. <laughs> Things from pop culture that I should know. Yes, <laughs> Citizen Kane is. <laughs> One of the classics, yeah, exactly. for sure. For sure. Exactly. Yeah. Like the classic. Right. <laughs> there's like Casablanca, there's Citizen yeah. Kane. And, you know, the person representing Hearst in Citizen Kane is very much a tragic figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll see how that all... I mean, do, so you, do you... Back to the bullish, skeptical perspective towards crypto, if you guys were to predict five years from the future in the amount of years from the future... Do you see blockchain-based bottom-up organizational structures and incentive structures beating things like Google, Amazon, Facebook, and what have you? Or how, how, how do you yeah. see those two well, evolving? Two know. things. One Please is Buildle. Yeah. And then the second part is Shipple. Uh, yes. <laughs> 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 That's right. Shipple is next. Um, and then, but really beyond that, it really comes back to user experience. And so, you know, that's where the empathy comes in. It's, yeah. You literally have to have enough empathy for your users to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's never done this before. Yeah. And that was uh, one of the most important things for founders making something from scratch. Is, mm-hmm. uh, what is it like for someone who does is not you, has never seen this before, uh, you know, who has totally different aims and goals 
Um, you know, what do they want out of this? Is this something that they actually want? Can you get them to click on the right thing so that they can accomplish the thing that they want? Yep. And that's where empathy really plays. And so part of the difficulty is the tech is so new, the protocols are so new, the user experience is not there. Yep. Um, but it will be. And that's why we talk about crypto being in the 1994 moment, yep. right? Like in 1994, very few people actually even had internet access. Yep. NCSA Mosaic was brand new. <laughs> Netscape had just been formed. Um, Mark Andreessen invented the image tag around yep. that time. Yep. So we're so early that the image tag is being designed right now mm -hmm. and um that's pretty exciting times yeah, actually fun. yeah <laughs> do you think that uh i mean i think a, a good you know case to aim for is the, the balance of power yeah. case where yeah. you have a lot of options yeah. and you can choose to um you know participate in the network with either you know a centralized actor or you have the optionality of um having like a competitive decentralized option mm -hmm that has a lot of your acquaintances or, or contacts on it. Yep, that might actually work in some yeah. ways. Yeah, that's the goal. Um, yeah, so I, one final follow-up question on this and then we'll transition to our final topic. Do you think um, if, 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 Biddle, if Hodel and Biddle were the memes for now, what would you guys think, and this might be a hard pattern match, but I'm not sure, what do you think would be the memes for um, like 1994 early internet? Like what would be... What was the rallying cry um, around that time? Um, I don't remember what the mean. I mean, like... I mean, memes didn't exist because information, it cost money still to move information. Um, um, like field of dreams, I don't know. It was, it was in 1994. Yeah. I was like, we were both, we were both like teeny. We were yeah. both very... But I remember um, going to the high school and like stringing Cat5 wire because that was mm. the first time the high school had... A, a computer, and B, internet access that was provided for free by some ASL non-profit. That's right. Not a bad one, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Three letters. Yeah, that's what I feel, yeah. I'm not sure. I, I watched a video of Mark Andreessen talking in 1993, 1994 recently about uh, internet as a virus and things like that. And it was it, it felt very similar to crypto, but it, yeah, I don't know... I, I mean, they said the information superhighway, yeah. the global village. And for me, and yeah, that's global actually... village is from the seventies. It's mm. like, isn't that a McLuhan oh, reference? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, that's yeah. The medium is the message, after all. Yeah, the medium is the message. Um, so transitioning to, so we've talked about decentralization from kind of a tech platform perspective. Um, well, let's talk about decentralization from a geographic perspective um what do you so we are currently in san francisco there are various people that post on the internet that say like oh my god san francisco it's like going away in various ways and like um power is going to other places for me personally being from denver it's like no like still a bunch of the sweet people that i follow on twitter are in san francisco how do you guys how are you feeling currently about san francisco as a place and especially in the context of you something like crypt, me, crypto you know, um, yeah, I mean, the way that they describe the area right now, it's an overflowing cup, right? Mm. So, filled the cup to the brim, and now it's just like spilling over. Yeah, Bart is barely over to the rest of the country. <laughs> um, and you know, I don't think the thing. So, the things that concern me from a long-term perspective here is that, like, so um, yeah, like a lot of like a lot of the 
you know, the, the suburban communities that were the original kind of founding... Like where we grew up, Fremont yeah, and Cupertino. Well, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, the original founding um, spaces that were central to the creation of Silicon Valley, like, they're rapidly aging out. So, like, you know, the median age in Palo Alto in 1970 with the dawn of the semiconductor industry was around 29 or 30. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, actually a really young place. Mm-hmm. Um, and today it's, like, well into the late 40s, and Palo is rapidly aging out. And there's nothing wrong with, like... You know, people we want people. We want to have multi generational communities, but the problem is they're not enabling more. Um, they're not enabling um, the inherent population growth that's already happening, mm-hmm. and they're not you know creating infrastructure and capacity yeah. such that the Bay Area can be or play the role that it was playing like 20, 30 yeah. years ago yeah. when um, you know middle class or working class immigrants. Like, my mom said the family were refugees who came here in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, could come here and participate, and then experience that upward yeah. social mobility. All of my high school friends so now, who are not in tech have left the Bay Area, yeah. and then now all of my tech friends, half of them are plotting their exits yeah. to Denver, to mm-hmm. Austin, to Seattle, mm-hmm. to yeah. Portland, to New yeah. York. Yeah. yeah, so people are spilling out, and what this does is it does a couple things to the culture of the mm-hmm. Bay Area and the culture of the industry. One is, like... Okay, we're fighting to keep the people that have made the Bay Area awesome, mm-hmm. right? Like, we don't want people to be displaced. But we're also creating the set of conditions where the only people who can come here are effectively, very, like, very wealthy yeah. people. Yeah. And so that just changes the range of ideas and perspectives that can be part of the mixing pot here. Um, I think it's, like, very good for... I mean, well, good is complicated. It's, yeah. you know, good for... Um, economic performance and innovation of other major metros, both in the United States and abroad. Yeah. Um, you know, it may not necessarily be good for like tenants in some of those communities because they're getting our overflow. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I, yeah, I hope I, my consistent, you know, repeated worry about the Bay Area is that you know we just become a locked out place where you can only come here if you're very wealthy or if you like live in your parents' home or something like that. And the reality is, even just for within the tech community, there are real effects in that one thing that we know happens in the past is, you know, there will be companies, like there's so much magic that happens here in sort of the random chance encounters between people Mm -hmm. that it actually enables uh, these companies to actually exist and thrive. And at the same time, um, we've seen companies leave and, you know, things that might have worked had they stayed here, they just don't work because yep. they don't have the communities, they don't have the set of values to sort of uh, really it's not, sustain it's, not just about, it's also the talent pool. Like, they, yes. they don't yeah. have people that they can hire. Um, I mean, obviously, they, they can hire and train people in, but there's just, like, a thicker, um, you know, engineer talent pool here that, yep. you know, there's more likely to find some, you know, a one-to-one match yeah. or whatever you're looking so for. The upshot is, you know, if San Francisco... Well, basically, can't. It's an overflowing cup. Um, then, on the tech side, there are actually companies that could have succeeded here that are failing elsewhere, mm-hmm. um, and that that won't be forever. And that's not zero sum. It just means it'll happen later. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But we're. I mean, we're fine. I mean, personally, a lot of people are always like, "Why don't you guys invest in more companies outside?" And I'm like, "We like traveling. We'll, we'll travel. We'll yeah. go wherever." One third of yeah. our portfolio is fully we'll outside and, of this. You know, that's not that's not the you know constraining factor. I'm just saying that if if this region doesn't make the long-term investments that it needs to make in capacity and infrastructure. Like, we'll go and invest in lots of other parts of the world. Or like, sorry, like the U.S. and Canada. 
Um, but you know, it doesn't mean that the situation is significantly better here for middle class people mm-hmm. unless there are significant changes in the governance and infrastructure systems here. Yep. Yeah, so uh, sounds like from the ground floor, it is happening. You guys can feel it. Um, yeah. And it is, but there's still lots of long-term inertia here. And yeah. it's kind of sad that some of that long-term inertia is going away because there's so much spontaneity that can happen. Yeah. Um, and it, the root of the issue is that, um, yeah, the infrastructure was not keeping pace with the um, with the innovation. And so it was lots yeah. and lots of stuff was happening and there wasn't, we didn't build enough big apartment buildings. Yeah. Um, so um, cool. Well, that's that's interesting. We'll see how it plays out in the ten year time scale in terms of where SF is compared to various other parts but, of yeah, the world. Don't get me wrong. I'm excited for other parts of yeah. the country. Like I always like. There are lots of great communities and cities mm-hmm. in the rest of the U.S. Yeah. that have nascent or nascent like ecosystems. And I'm not thinking about just like New York or LA or Seattle. There's yep. a lot, a lot of other ones. Chattanooga, yep. Atlanta. Yep. We have we're yep. seeing great companies come out of all sorts of places. Yep. Yep. Once you, uh, yeah, everybody has access to the internet. Everybody can learn. Smart people and hardworking people are not are grown everywhere. No. Yeah. Yep. Thanks to the um, global village and the information super highway. <laughs> Um, well, with that, uh, thank you again both for, for being here and for being on the show. It was fun. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and if you want to, I guess if you are a entrepreneur that is looking to be invested in, I don't know, I think that you guys probably aren't allowed to say these words, but I can say these words. <laughs> you can go to initializecapital.com. Initialize.com. Uh, initialize.com. Yes. You know, swing and a miss. Uh, nice try, Reese. Um, you can also follow both uh, Gary and Kim on Twitter. What are your Twitter handles? Uh, I'm Gary Tan, at Gary Tan, G-A-R-R-Y-T-A-N. Yeah, and he's Twitter. Gary Block Chan. Yep. Well, that's not his, like, that's his, like, name. Yeah, yeah, not his real name. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe you should do a legal name change, maybe. though. Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> and I'm Kim I. Cutler. That's K-I-M-M-A-I-C-U-T-L-E-R on Twitter. Woohoo! Um, thank you all for listening. And if you want to support me, you can support me at patreon.com slash Rieslindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. And the same on Staketree if you want to support with ETH. Um, so thank you so much for listening and goodbye. guys ever do an um or an ah, then I'm not going to post the episode. Oh, no. <laughs> you guys are like, oh, is he, is he serious? Like, like-